And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, <coughs> drumroll please, we've got the one, the only, Mr. Robert Howe. Uh, but before before I let you introduce yourself, I have to apologize that we're, we're riding just us today. Uh, Saska is trying to convince herself that all 12 people at Dragon Con make it a big event. And um, <laughs> Nick is playing Magic Mike somewhere, trying to earn a little bit of extra spending money. But, you know, I got to respect the hustle, so I won't make fun of him too much. But uh, we, we won't make fun of him too much. But, you know, of course, we're still going to make fun of him. Absolutely. So uh, can you tell listeners and viewers who might not know who you are, who the one, the only Mr. Robert Howell, Rob Howell is? I sure hope I'm the only one, one and only. And I'm weird enough for all of us, I think. Uh, my name's Rob. I write uh, medieval fantasy. I write urban fantasy now on occasion. Uh, alternate history. I write uh, uh, military science fiction. I'm a former medieval academic. Uh, I play in the SCA and um, have done so for over 20 years now. And uh, let's see, what else is there? Oh, I'm also a bit of a Rush fan. And most of the time you see me at concerts, I'll have a Rush t-shirt on. Or at uh, conventions, I'll have a Rush t-shirt on. So if you're looking for me at, a, say, Planet Comic Con or something like that, look for the guy in the Rush t-shirt. And that's me, JR. You still there? It would help if I didn't mute myself. Ah. Um, Elvis was barking and I forgot to turn it off. So <laughs> <clears throat> the next part of the introduction, that's what happens with life with a hound dog. Uh, I love so hound next, dogs. He's handsome. He's cute. He's adorable. But man, he can get annoying sometimes. <laughs> he, he's ready for us. After this is done, we're going for a walk. So he's, he's excited. Awesome. It's that time of year where you walk at night to avoid the uh, the heat, where you're balancing heat stroke with mosquito, death by mosquitoes. It's a, it's a delicate thing, summer yes. in the south. So the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first found them. So I actually met Rob back in 2018, I believe. Uh, it was definitely, I think it was the last HonorCon, but it was definitely at one of the few in-person events I attended. So if it's not that, it had to be RavenCon. But we definitely met in person. It was um, HonorCon. Okay. Um, so, you know, those big events aren't nearly normally my thing. Too many people, you know, um, <clears throat> those in PTSD don't go well together, but uh, I did get to meet him. So that's kind of cool. He's a good dude, a fellow history nerd. So that's winning. Uh, and Seska isn't here to tell us to shut up. If we go off the beaten path talking about <laughs> dead people, um, he's also a fantasy guy. So when we did rebrand, uh, at the beginning of the year, I knew, uh, we had to get him on, uh, it took a while to make the schedules happen, but I'm glad you're finally here for an interview about your books. He also was here for the, uh, fireside chat, a uh, couple episodes back. So you should check that out as well. Yeah. I want to thank you again for having me. I appreciate both times. And yeah, I, I have vague memories of that Archon. I might have had a beer or three at some point during the convention, I but we need to, to go down that path. <laughs> I seem to remember all the fun conversations ended up at the bar. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, I've been to that and RavenCon twice. It's the only three events that I've been to. And at the RavenCon, you ended up with uh, the Trekkies going a little nuts. So there's a guy dressed as a Klingon and a guy dressed as just Starfleet. And they're both drunk. And he was speaking a foreign language. And the other guy was answering him. And then 
Man, that was pretty hardcore because half the time I'm drunk, I can't tell you my name. <laughs> I was actually sitting at a bar in Moscow uh, at a hotel uh, for a school trip in 1989 uh, talking to some East German dude. Uh, and it's the best German I can ever recall speaking because I was drunk enough to get over the self-consciousness of speaking in a language I didn't know very well. So German's actually pretty easy. You just got to sound like you're angry and you're about to spit on someone when you talk. <laughs> that is the secret. Yeah, I'm not too good at angry. I, I actually don't do angry well anymore. Yeah, I've mellowed since since I left the army. But uh, so now uh, that we've got you here, we can't let you escape without asking you the religion question. So Deep Space Nine, Babylon 5, or Battlestar Galactica? Well, I'm going to waffle a little bit here. I mean. Babylon 5 is the best story, I think, of any sci-fi fantasy genre show when you take the whole story arc. However, if there's one high priest I'm going to follow, it's Hawk. The Avery Brooks, who played Benjamin Sisko, also played a character named Hawk from the Spencer for Hire series. And as we'll get into later, the Spencer characters are some of my favorites. So, I'll follow Hawk, but Babylon 5 had a better story arc than Deep Space Nine. Didn't Deep Space Nine steal the plot line from Babylon 5 anyway? I don't know. There were lawsuits involved back in the day, I seem to remember. (laughs) I I think the people that Babylon 5 pitched it to Trek, and Trek said no, and then when Babylon 5 was releasing, they were releasing essentially the same damn plot. But I don't know whatever what the disposition of that court case was. Mm. But, but that I did remember enough to know that it happened, which is why I put the two together. <laughs> but, Getting Ivanova uh, and, and Cisco into a, a bar brawl and we'll see what happens then. <laughs> yeah, I, I I like the Battlestar Galactica, and and I'm weird because I like the new one and the and the old one. Oh, um, I loved them both, but you know. I actually, and this is going to sound sacrilegious, but I thought the re-envisioning of Starbuck in the new one where they made her female and her connection to the family was that she was uh, romantically in- attached to the dead brother instead of they were just all buddies. That actually made that connection to the family a lot more, a lot deeper. So I actually like that change. And normally I'm not, I'm not a big supporter of those kinds of things uh, where you change gender or race just so you can check a box. But this one actually served the plot, and I think it, it did a lot for it. So, Well, I think from a writing perspective, if you are just checking a box, then you're just checking a box, and it's, it's, it's annoying. But if you do a writing thing, then yeah, that's, that's different. I will say, though, I'm such a Dirk Benedict fan um, because of A-Team as well as Battlestar Galactica that you know, it didn't matter who they got. Uh, whether it was, uh, you know, uh, it, it'd be hard pressed for someone to match Dirk Benedict. Fair. I um, the only thing I don't like about the original, and this isn't a movie thing; it's more of a how they released it. So, when you buy a box set of something, it helps if they release them <clears throat> when they bundle them. If they do it, keep them as episodes. It just makes reading them easier. And when they released. Um, them on DVD for the box set for the original Battlestar Galactica because I own it. They did it like a bunch, a collection of two-hour movies. 
which means if you only have time to sit and watch an episode, you know, around your schedule, you know, you could just watch an episode a day for a while. It makes it really hard to know where you are to track it. Cause like if I watch Stargate, okay, season four, episode 12, boom, I pop it in and I go and I can remember that. But with the way they did the battle of Star Galactica, it was just, it was a pain uh, from a usability uh, interface kind of point of view. Hmm. Now I didn't notice that. It could just be the version that I bought, but I had to, a lot when I was looking were in not region one, which is the U.S. for DVDs. So that could just be what they released in America. I don't know. Huh. But anyway, we've got one more religion question before we can let you move on to the interview. So this is our gatekeeper question. Legend, Lord of the Rings, or Throne of Elves? Uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, easy. I am a medieval historian. I studied Anglo-Saxon England. I've read Tolkien's stuff for his academic work and loved it there too. And the Lord of the Rings really to a great extent got me into fantasy to begin with. So I read it about every year, you know, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I read those about every year uh, again. I love it. So legend was a good movie. I don't know if there's a book for it. And I picked throne of elves. Cause I literally just, I try to keep them themed now. So I typed in fantasy elf movie and that came up. Those are three that came up. I actually first thought you meant Throne of uh, uh, Game of Thrones, and just sort of was a little whimsical with it. But no, I no, I actually never heard of Throne of Elves. If we're going to talk fantasy movie, though, the my favorite fantasy movie, other than Lord of the Rings, is Conan, the original one. Um, so such a great storytelling movie. Okay, is that the one with uh, the original one with Schwarzenegger? Yeah, Schwarzenegger and um, uh, James Earl Jones and uh, a bunch of, I mean, if you look down the cast, it's an incredible cast. It really is. I didn't know James Earl Jones was in it. Yeah, he was Tulsa Doom. Huh. He was the bad guy. He was great. And one of his other bad guys was... um, uh, a Swedish weightlifting champion, as I recall, and the other uh, thug that he had was Ben Davidson, the former defensive tackle for the Raiders. I also think he played for the Packers uh, back in the sixties. Uh, right. And um, so it had Subatai, who actually was uh, Gary Jones or Jerry Jones, something like that. He was a surfer. He's a, a top-notch surfer. This is one of the few movies he was in, and he did a real good job as a sidekick. And uh, let's see, uh, The Wizard, Akira the Wizard, um, one of those one of those actors who's in so many so many roles. You see him all the time, and I'm blanking on his name right now. Anyway, great movie. You go if you look down the cast on that movie, you see a ton of of really good names or interesting names. Uh, really neat, really neat. Uh, cast honestly and i will also say that if you want something to write with some music to write with the soundtrack by basil polidores is fantastic you can get it on amazon a a three disc set and and i tell you i there are times when okay i really got to get some epic fantasy written i'll just put that on my uh on my media player and so for two and a half three hours i've got some amazing fantasy inspired and fantasy inspiring music to push me into the next into making cool stuff 
I uh, if I'm going for for soundtracks, I really like the Last of the Mohicans soundtrack. Yeah, I don't know that one well. I didn't actually see the movie in in the in the theaters. You're talking the I, Daniel Day Lewis one, right? Yeah, I actually watched it uh, in theaters when it was like the cinema cafe kind of, you know, see it again movie theater. So uh, I don't go to movie theaters after that was actually probably one of the last movies I saw in the theater. Wow. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, it's but been a while. I can't even remember the last movie. Um, my sweetie doesn't particularly care to go to movies in the theater. Didn't even before all the craziness. Um, yeah, I uh, I just kind of figured, you know, I could watch it at home, and then TVs only got better as far as screen quality. So, I will say this to circle about back to your question: when Return of the King came out, uh, a number of theaters across the United States showed like for fourteen. They basically gave you a fourteen-hour ticket, and um, they showed the extended edition. Um, uh, Fellowship, Extended Edition, Two Towers, and then you got to see a couple of days early the Return of the King. And it was, I think it cost me $50 or something like that for a ticket. But man, it's one of the best uh, theater watching experiences I've ever had. Nice. All right. So because uh, we here at the Blasters and Blades podcast, like both the fantastical and the scientific, what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? <laughs> so there's a funny story about this. In 1977, my parents took me to a movie. And I didn't want to go to this movie. Because it was science fiction. And who really wants to... Who likes science fiction? Give me Tolkien. I was nine at the time. I'd already read The Hobbit and was, I'd already read The Lord of the Rings. And, and I loved fantasy. And Who wants to go watch science fiction? Uh, that movie, of course, it was Star Wars. And so that was when, that is literally the moment when science fiction became a part of my life. First week it opened. It wasn't the first day, but it's the first day week, weekend. My parents struck me to it. Didn't want to go. They were right. Sad to say. So was that your first memory? Well, was Tolkien then your first memory of the speculative fiction genre? No, actually. Um, I mean, it, it's up there, but. The first one I can recall really getting into uh, is a book I, I tracked down on, on you know one of the used bookstore websites some time ago, The Ghost of Dibble Hollow. Um, I really loved that book. It was one of those scholastic books that you got, you ordered through, through school. You know, they would pass out the thing and you could order however many books and you'd go home to your mom. Hey, I want to get, you know, 48 books. And your mom goes... No, you can't have that many. You can only have like 20 or something like that. Because my parents, if if it was reading, they would pretty much let me do just about anything. But, you know, you'd go through. But the Ghost of Bible, I remember reading in first or second grade, first grade maybe. And uh, I still got it. I read it occasionally. It's, uh, I mean, it's not something in the great literature of the world. But I love that story and uh, still do. Okay. <clears throat> a lot of us of a certain age have great memories of the scholastic book fairs. I don't know if they even still do those. I, I don't know either. Um, but man, that was always the best, one of the best weeks in school. Yep. Yes, it was. So what is it you love about speculative fiction as a genre? Whew. You know, that's a really hard question to ask because there's so much I love. Uh, uh, I mean, I can give some of the generic answers, 
But I think it's because I fell in love with um, mythology. And Tolkien, and I didn't know this when I first read Lord of the Rings, but I think part of the reason I got into Tolkien so much is that he designed that to be sort of the mythology of what England should have had. And so when I, I left Bullfinch's mythology into the other mythological stuff I read is when I was really young um, and got into Tolkien, it was sort of an easy flow. It's like these things match. And then, of course, there was in Bullfinch's mythology, there's, there's also um, uh, not only the Greek mythologies, but there's also King Arthur. Really easy to fall in love with all the King Arthur stories. And it was heroes doing heroic things. And I'll talk about how that inspires me later on. But I always liked the idea of heroes doing heroic things. And it didn't necessarily matter. It, it, at this point, it doesn't matter whether they're doing that because they've got six guns and it's high noon in Tombstone. Or if it's standing at, the, at Helm's Deep. Or if it's Rast, Prince Rastar at the gate in the Prince Roger stories by Ringo and Weber. It's, I like heroes doing heroic things. And all along, fantasy novels started, at least when I first got into it, with that as the basic concept. Conan is a hero, and Fawford and the Grey Master, they're heroes. Um, all these great heroes doing heroic things. That's what I've always wanted from my stories. Okay, so how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition into you writing the stories? Mark Twain said something like, good writers borrow, great writers steal. Uh, the truth is, is that every writer has a whole collection, a, jum a gumbo, to, so to speak, of influences. And so it's, it's certainly true that David Eddings has influenced my writing. Um, I love the way he used tropes and, and characters and made them likable. Um, obviously Tolkien. Uh, and I can go down, you know, Conan's, uh, Robert E. Howard's use of language and the way he structured those fights, um, the kind of craziness that was in Fawford and Elric uh, stories that, that added chaos. And sometimes I think Moorcock and Lieber went a little bit overboard, but that was still something I liked and wanted to put into it. Uh, and then, you know, as I, I look at uh, Asimov and Heinlein, and Elizabeth Moon, and Ursula K. Le Guin, and Andre Norton, and uh, uh, Gordon R. Dixon, and Glenn Cook, and all these other writers, I'm filing bits and pieces that have greatly, that I read a chunk and I go, oh, I kind of think I got that from, you know, this or there, or it's a mishmash of a couple of things that I just smashed together and stuck in because it seemed right. So I would say nothing in particular. It's just all there. It's, it's gumbo. It's a stew. Okay. Um, so many authors let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that you think sort of shape you as a storyteller? If you want a specific moment, I'll give you a couple from the SCA. Been in the SCA for 20 years, like I said. Um, I was marching out to battle at Penzik once, and there's a a group called Volgamut, and basically what they do is they take medieval instruments and they medieval songs, 
but they play with the energy and the um, tempo of basically heavy metal. And they were leading us out to battle. Uh, Penzik is this big SCA event, and the battles at that time were something like 800 people versus 800 people. And so really intense uh, moments when you see those 800 people start marching across the field at you. And I I was so ready for it because they were always such epic things to be a part of. Anyway, um, Volgamut led us out, led our army out to the battle. And I put my hand on a buddy and closed my eyes. And I could hear this Celtic war march. And I could hear the jingling of chainmail and other armor. And I could smell the leather and the, the oil, metal and rust and all of the other things that armor smells like. The sweat. And, you know, feeling the armor on myself. And for five, ten seconds, I was... I was in a Kukulon story, Stealing Cattle, one of the Irish epic stories. And it's that sort of thing that I always try to give some context to to my readers. Um, I, I mean, in more general sense, in the SCA, since I've done so many things, uh, you know, I've done carpentry, I've done some smithing, uh, I've even, you know, I've tried various... Um, fabric arts, uh, I've done calligraphy. I don't do any of these things well, but I've tried them all here and there. And so I, I have all of this material recreation archaeology. Even if I'm not good at it, I've tried it, I've got some feel for it, and I know where I can find good information on it. So I, I do try to be truthful in terms, even though it's fantasy, I want that veracity, I want that reality uh, foundation in my stories so that we're not always talking about, you know, hand wavium type stuff, even in fantasy. I don't, don't particularly care for it. Um, magic exists, but there should be some foundation of reality that helps me as writer and hopefully helps the readers, uh, enjoy it more because it's more, it's stronger to their, to their touch and their expense, their, their own senses. So, does that answer what you were hoping for on that? I'm not actually sure. Uh, yeah, so for those that don't know, what is the SCA? Hmm. That's a good point. Uh, the SCA is a medieval reenactment organization. Um, it is the probably the oldest. It was formed in 66 and um, formed by a number of uh, fantasy authors as well. And many of them, such as Paul Anderson, um, Robert Lynn Aspirin, uh, Randall Garrett were all in there uh, at one point or another, a bunch of others. Um, it's uh, basically started as a, an idea of trying to do fairies and medieval um, uh, uh, Arthuriana type stuff and, and Tolkien, which was huge at colleges at the time, and then turned into something that's trying to be more and more recreation archaeology. It'll probably never get to the level of some of the, the really intense recreation archaeology uh, groups, but it's also tried to be a big, bit of a bigger tent, and in many ways it succeeded to include more people. So there are a bunch of medieval reenactment organizations now. There's a bunch of uh, LARPing groups that do a lot of fun stuff. Uh, 
there are lots of places you can do these sorts of things. Put on medieval type clothes and go out and 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 do some sort of sport, whether it's equestrian or boffer fighting or steel fighting or rattan fighting or archery or whatever you want to do. Um, I'm a big believer that finding the group that that you enjoy having fun with because it's a hobby that can be quite a quite a bit of fun. So it sounds like it's somewhere, uh, if you were looking at a sliding scale, somewhere between LARPing and HEMA, which is the historic European martial arts, as far Absolutely. as uh, its its value on a historical spectrum. Although, I mean, from purely historical, if you, like the armor just between the 1300s and the 1400s was enough different that that it changed fighting. So you wouldn't see, you wouldn't see the types of armor uh, and array of of ethnic cultures in a real historic setting as you would at a at a Ren Fair or or an SCA event. The SCA was sort of given the the way this decision was made is somebody said you've gotta you gotta tell us if we're gonna make this charter for the, the this legal thing for you as an organization, you gotta tell us when you where you're going to be, you know, what what you're trying to do. And so numbers just got picked up out of a hat. And in fact, I would contend that the numbers they chose should be earlier. They should be shifted earlier. Uh, they chose 600 to 1600, and those have sort of varied over the years. But that's for that one particular group. And frankly, there have been lots of people who've done some stuff, some Roman stuff that's amazing, um, and some stuff that's in the 1600s that's amazing, and 1700s that's amazing. So honestly, I'm at this point, and I've, like I said, been doing this for a while, and, and had gotten, you know, a goodly amount of uh, experience doing a variety of things. My feeling on all this is go try and do stuff. It's all of these hobbies, whether it's LARPing, whether it's HEMA, whether it's SCA, whether it's Civil War reenactment or anything like that. All of them are things that you have to go do. If you want to have fun with them, you go do things and you, you try them and figure out which of these things work best for you. And, and then try something new, because who knows? Even if you got really good at something, um, uh, I, I've been recognized for my poetry and my, my ability to write poetry, and ability to do um, uh, bardic performances in the SCA. And so what did I do? I tried something completely new after I, I you know, got that recognition and, and tried calligraphy. I was bad at it, really bad at it. But I didn't, you know, I, I, I enjoyed learning it. And, and I think all of those organizations, they are thing, places where if you go try and do things, you'll get something positive out of it. So when you do your sword fighting with SCA as opposed to LARPing, is it actual metal blades or is it foam sticks? Uh, in between. Uh, we use rattan, uh, which is a form of bamboo, solid bamboo. Um, it has the advantage of when it breaks, it usually breaks in either pulpy messes. So it's just sort of like a blade of grass doesn't splinter. It just falls over. Or if it does, if it's really old, occasionally it'll vanish in a puff of smoke, um, a puff of dust as, the, as it sort of disintegrates. But there's no big splinters to get anybody's eyes or anything like that. Uh, it's basically we're hitting each other with baseball bats. And let me tell you, I've had some pretty epic bruises from not blocking sufficiently. Okay. Yeah, epic bruises. 
So let's transition away from from the historical and the and the fantastical to the uh, writing side. So, have you gotten any cool fan art or had anyone cosplay your characters yet? I do believe uh, that this weekend Casey Moore's is wearing a, the unit patch for my mercenary unit in the Four Horsemen universe. Universe. Uh, I do know other other people have been cosplaying uh, the Queen Elizabeth's own Foresters, um, which is the unit that I created. Uh, in uh, the feeding of sorrows and the ravening of wolves, um, so it's really an honor when you have somebody go, "Hey, I, I'm getting the unit flash for yours, and I'm putting it on my unit. And I'm going to go do this with it, you know, whatever it is." And so he's going to march in uh, the DragonCon parade with that flash. Uh, I, is that tomorrow? I'd actually have no clue when the parade is. Is that parade tomorrow? Not sure. Uh, I think the event ends on Sunday. We're recording this on f- Saturday, I think. I don't know. I lose track of days. Yeah, uh, I think it's. it's <clears throat> I think the event actually ends on Monday these days, but I don't. I don't know for sure because Monday's Labor Day, so they should be able to do it. Anyway, I don't know, but anyway, he, he's marching in the parade with uh, my unit badge. That is pretty awesome. I may actually have to buy that jerk of beer one of <laughs> one of these days. <laughs> nice, nice. So, um, has anyone asked for your autograph since you started writing? Well, uh, not like I haven't been at the store and, and had anybody walk up and, hey, you're that Rob Howell dude. I need your autograph. Uh, but I do sign my books at conventions and at SCA events where I sell. And I have a lot of fun with it. Um, at Penzik, first year I was selling books there. Uh, I signed for someone and, and said, uh, you know, I wrote first time I was signing for anybody I'd never met before, had no idea what to write. And, you know, I wanted to write something whimsical. So I wrote, uh, they, they told me he was a gamer. I said, congratulations, you rolled a 14 on the wandering signature chart. And as I drove home from that Penzik, uh, I said, well, that's actually a really good idea. I should come up with uh, 20 different signatures. And so whenever somebody buys a book, they, they roll a big D20, and and, and uh, I sign it like that. Like, this isn't the signature you're looking for, or, uh, you know, uh, the one signature to rule them all, or, or something like that. And then, so I originally started with just a regular D20, and then I was at an event and got myself a big foam D20. And boy, these are fun. Show it now. Hold it up now. I got you solo screen so they can see it. Oh, wow. That's huge. That's as big as your head. <laughs> it's not quite as big as my head, but it's it's bigger than a softball, for example. And, oh, yeah. Here you go. And, uh, yeah, I, I started having that. I, um, I'm surprised at how many people will come across, uh, like, a, um, a Planet Comic Con where there's 70,000 people or whatever, and there's, you know, a thousand uh, authors and artists and whatnot in creative, Creators Alleys. And they people walking by will be like, that's a big D20. And we get to talking, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, it was one of the most serendipitous uh, things I've run into in this job. So, yeah, I sign my books pretty much at, at uh, every convention. If you buy a book from me, I'm happy to sign it for you. Uh and we can play my little game and see which see which one you get. You should uh, show them the one because that's what I'd most likely roll. It seems. Uh, I think number one is uh, 
I am your college. Uh, I am your father's college. Luke, I am your father's college roommate's ghostwriter. <laughs> okay. So uh, finally, have you ever spotted anybody out in public reading your books? Uh, I have been walking around Penzig um, or other SEA events. And I will see people in their camp. And they'll look up from their book and they'll wave at me and they'll be like, hey. And, and that's really a neat feeling. When you walk, when you're walking around this, you know, 10,000 people in the middle of Pennsylvania and people are spending their vacation time reading your stuff. That's pretty, it's a neat honor. Okay. So, uh, this is the part of the interview, Rob Howell, where you tell us everything you've written. Uh, we can get the reader's digest version or you can name, you know, chapter by chapter, whatever works for you. But, but what have you written? What is your body of work? Well, it's starting to get up there now. Um, I my first book that we'll talk a little bit more about was A Lake Most Deep, and that came out um, August thirtieth of twenty fifteen. So in the six years since, um, I haven't done as much as I wanted, but I have had a couple of moves in there, and I've had some lipo people. But uh, uh, I've done this series here, which is A Lake Most Deep. Um, oops, if I can do this, name it at the camera. Like, oh, I'm bad at. There we go. And then the other two in that series, The Eyes of a Doll. I never move it the right direction when it comes to the cameras. And then uh, We're Another Writer. That's this series here. Uh, these, we'll talk about more, uh, weren't what I expected them to be. This is what I sort of expected to write the first time, which is an epic fantasy trilogy. Uh, I Am a Wondrous Thing, uh, Brief is My Flame, and None Call Me Mother. Boom, boom, boom. And these three, I didn't expect to be um, as powerful as they were. But, you know, it's one of those neat writing things when you finish a trilogy and you have the story arc that you start with. And then four years later, you finish this huge three book story arc that you've tried to make fit. And if you can get it to fit, and I did, I got all the pieces to mesh the way I wanted to, including a big epic final battle that I'm pretty pleased with. Ah, and characters I love. Well, that's kind of neat. So this was a, a fun thing just to do. Writing a trilogy is different than writing a, a book, and I'm I'm pleased with where I went with that. Uh, I also write in the Four Horsemen universe. Um, in the Four Horsemen universe, I've got the uh, foresters that I've created. I mentioned before uh, they are a mercenary unit that I'm basing on some of my grandfather's history. He enlisted in the army, in the Canadian army in 1916 at the age of 14 and he spent some time in France. Uh, he didn't actually get to the front lines because they kind of knew he was 14. Um, but I went ahead and, and used the forestry corps, which is who, what they assigned him as the basis for my, uh, unit. And uh, that actually led me to the foresters. The gray and Simcoe foresters are the only Canadian regiment currently in existence that are foresters. And if you go to their website, um, they trace their lineage back to Robin Hood. And I thought that was kind of neat too. So I sort of built the idea of a Canadian mercenary regiment in the future off of the idea of the Canadian army and uh, built my rank structure and, and all sorts of stuff like that out of uh, their traditions and their comm protocols out of their traditions. and. Uh, had a lot of fun with that, and I've really been pleased by uh, those members of the Canadian Army 
who have uh, read it and enjoyed it. Um, so what is a that, forester? I'm sorry, what? What is a forester? Forestry a, for, unit? a forester unit, um, the way they usually were used to be and the way they are now is they're light infantry designed to work in terrain that is cluttered, essentially. Forests, uh, places like that. Um, so they tend to be uh, skirmisher units more than they tend to be main battle line units traditionally. Okay. Um, so different set of techniques. At times, as the Canadian, uh, if you go look at the Gray and Simcoe unit history, which it's got a pretty proud unit history, um, at times it has been turned into something a little bit heavier. But again, with sort of the same idea, uh, during the height of the Cold War, I believe they were a, a fast mech infantry unit designed to perform scouting, I'm guessing, uh, to service scouting units ahead of the main battle tanks in Germany, which, of course, is filled with its own sort of forested terrain and, and difficult terrain to work in. So that would have made perfect sense for them. And, and as mech infantry, they would have been able to keep up somewhat with the um, challenges that. Anyway, that's what foresters are. They tend towards those sorts of tactical roles. Okay. Um, so other than the uh, Sinjurin, how do you... We'll to, yeah, we'll talk about that in a, minute, in a bit. Actually, that name will come up again. Uh, other than that and the Four Horsemen, are you doing any other series or is that it for you at the moment? Uh, so that's the only series I'm working on at the moment, although there's some tweaks to that, um, which we'll talk about, I think. Um, the... But I've written a lot of other short stories. I wrote a couple of paired short stories from for um, Jamie Ibsen in the We Dare series. Uh, I call that On Opportunity's Trail. And someday I might write about um, Mars trying to regain its, trying to gain its freedom against Earth in a in a post-apocalyptic um, uh, time frame. Uh, I also wrote a couple of short stories that are paired for James Young in his uh, alternate history, his military alternate history universe. Um, these are set in the early 1900s. Um, and I don't want to give talk about them too much because, honestly, if I talk about anything, it gives so much away. This was such a, a spoiler story. But it, I'm really pleased with how they came out. The first one of those is entitled Far Better to Dare. And it's a lot of fun to think about that. And maybe I'll be able to write in that universe as well. Um, also for James, I wrote a short story that had um, that's set around the Battle of Malden, which happened in 991. And there's a, a surviving Old English poem that is really a neat poem. Um, about a, talks a lot about the Anglo-Saxon warrior culture, and some of the decisions made that day are kind of odd, uh, certainly by our standards. Uh, one of those decisions is um, the local Old English levies had the Vikings sort of penned up on an island, and the only way the Vikings could come across was across a causeway. You know, only get two or three or four people um, uh, next to each other, so they couldn't really overwhelm the English. Uh, the Viking leader um, actually asked the English leader, "Hey, would you let us just cross over so we can fight, you know, fairly?" And the English leader let him do that. You know, in the poem, 
it said he did that because of overweening pride. But in the story, I give him a tactical uh, reason for doing so, and I, which I think is much stronger. And I do change the outcome of the battle because it could very well have gone differently if certain people had held the line. Uh, but uh, yeah, we studied that as the uh, in military history classes, one of the great blunders for them letting them out of their trap position. But there's a reason why there's a strategic reason. And I said tactical earlier, but really it's a strategic reason that makes a lot more sense to me as I've studied that battle. Why Birknoth would have allowed them to cross that causeway that I don't think a lot of people ever consider. Well, we will bore our listeners if we dig into that, but you and I will have to talk <laughs> offline. <laughs> well, actually, so. I put it, read that story. <laughs> all right. All right. And so when yeah. we link to, uh, we will link to your Amazon page in the show notes so you can see his body of work and, and check out the anthologies he's in to find that story. And while all of that obviously sounds fascinating, you hinted at it already, but we're going to talk about A Lake Most Deep, the first book in the Adventures of Edward series, which is part of your Shajuran um, worlds. So how did you come up with the premise for that universe? Was it psychedelics, a Ouija board, too much tainted meat at Pensick? Uh, Wait, do they drink meat there? Uh, yes. Yes, okay. meat is drunk at Pensick. Uh, uh, guzzled is probably a better term for that. I mean, we're camping, right? What do we have to do? Stagger back to our tent? Uh, so not like you have to drink and drive or anything like that. Uh, Unless no. you've got a horse, and then I don't know if you can get a ticket for drinking and driving with a horse. Um, my ability to ride sober suggests I'll just walk home, even if it is a long way. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I was in a situation where I, I, I decided I was going to write a fantasy novel. And I just started writing. I am a pantser, generally speaking, and that means I write by the seat of my pants, which means I... I just go start throwing words at a page. And in the case of A Lake Most Deep, um, I had intended to write an epic fantasy with a lot of Tolkien, with all the Eddings and all of the you know, Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance and you know all the other ones I've talked about. Like It was all going to be sort of taking my influences and trying to make something that was me based on you know picking through all that stuff. And I got 30,000 words into it, and I realized I had done something kind of stupid in a way, but serendipitous in another. Uh, at the time I was writing that, uh, I was doing my sort of every other year I reread all of Raymond Chandler and all of Robert B. Parker. And I realized that I had written a, a Robert B. Parker Spencer novel set in a Tolkien version of the Balkans. And why did I choose the Balkans? I had actually done an archaeological dig um, in uh, Macedonia in 2006. And we spent some time in a town called Okrid. Beautiful town. And it's kind of, and, and it was originally called Akrita, and that's what it is in my novels. I use the older name. And I, I, I suddenly realized what I was writing was a Spencer novel. Uh, it just happened to be with swords, and it happened to be in the Balkans area of, of you know, using Okrid as inspiration. 
and Oak Ridge is right next to one of the largest deep uh, freshwater, excuse me, deepest freshwater lakes uh, in existence. And that is the source of the title, Lake Most Deep, with a number of other connotations I wanted to put into there. But anyway, I was 30,000 words into it, and I realized I was writing not a, an epic fantasy, but I was writing private novel. And uh, I went back and changed all, changed it all to first person, because I think actually the that sort of novel works better in first person as the detectives or as the characters learn things, the audience should learn them too. Uh, and uh, I wrote it because it sounded like fun. I Not anything at all that I had ever anticipated writing, but I wrote it and said, boy, this is fun. So I wrote two more. I got a fourth one coming. Uh, so that's how that happened. I was trying to write the epic uh, fantasy novel to you know, sort of following the footsteps of Tolkien and Eddings and and the Dragonlance and all that stuff, and took a right turn at Albuquerque. Okay, so if you're writing in uh, a new take on Macedonia, did you have an Alexander the Great? Ah, this is much later than Alexander the Great. I was under the Greats, you know, 325 or so BC. What I was thinking of was more the 1400s uh, Balkan area, which is okay. Prince Marco. Uh, uh, Prince Marko Mernyevchevich, who is one of their great heroes, sort of the Macedonian Arthur, uh, and more along the lines of them fighting, uh, them being a part of the Byzantine Empire and uh, fighting uh, crusaders at times and uh, Islamic invaders from the west, from the east. So uh, Balkans have always been sort of a, a challenging place. Because uh, of the crossroads of the, of the geography, their place is a crossroads in, in between Europe and Asia. Okay. So, well, before we dig into the story itself, this is the part where I show the cover, and you tell me the, how you came up with this piece of art. I didn't come up with this piece of art. I told my uh, artist, whose name is Patrick McAvoy, hey, I wanted something uh, where I had uh, one of my characters uh, wounded and another character, you know trying to get his vengeance and in a fight and it had to had to be kinetic and he gave me something kinetic and uh i really enjoy that piece of art it's it's in a lot of my promo material um he did a great job for me patrick mcavoy of megaflowgraphics.com if you're looking for a good cover artist looking for just a good artist of fantasy in general i uh, i recommend him he he does things on time he He's very nice to work with. Um, I like him quite a bit. And so if those of you looking at this cover say, that doesn't look like the fantasy novels I'm used to seeing, you got to remember <clears throat> that cover art and what is popular shifts, evolves. And so when this was released in early uh, 2016, I believe. 2015. Uh, 2015 that was what a lot of the covers looked like so when you do your cover you got to make it you know look just like everything else but be different that's the the old adage so um so that was that was in line with what, a lot of what you're seeing and then when everyone rushed as the covers evolved to change theirs to keep up so it stayed relevant some people chose to leave them as the original so you stick out because now you're retro uh, I have the, I have that with one of my first series. It was it was the uh, old stock art compilation that the people would do, and you'd see that same Space Marine on like a hundred covers, and now everyone else redid their covers, and I'm the only one using them, so it, it works, right? Like it's one of those situations uh, well, as covers it, evolve. And 
as you as a writer understand what your covers should do more and more. Uh, I'm now up to, boy, counting the ones I've been involved with as editor um, and publisher, I'm now up to about uh, 12 to 15 covers that I've worked with, with two or three more happening every month. And I get a much better idea of the kind of style I want, the kind of kinetic um, style or the kind of energy energies I want on them. And um, this is all a journey, right? Nothing about writing, whether it's your prose, whether it's, you know, how you structure your novels, what kind of characters you make, whether it's uh, your input on the cover art, your blurbs on the back, all of these things, it's a journey that you have to learn and practice it, it takes a while and i'm still sort of i'm still fairly early in the journey i've only been doing this for about six or seven years so i've still got lots to learn yeah what's that i think richard fox who said it was that when people's like oh you were an overnight sensation it just took him six years to get there uh, i'm still so hoping the- for that you know i'm still i'm i make i've found that my career has grown a little bit each year um, COVID didn't help, but, uh, it's still growing as I'm, I'm learning and getting better and, you know, just getting stronger and, and meeting more people and, and learning how to work with, with more and more things and do more t- techniques. Um, there, there used to say there was no right way to run the business side of things. Some people base their business on selling paperbacks at events, which is what you did. Other people had purely online. And then of course, COVID forced all the event people who that was their shtick and they made a good living at it suddenly had to learn a completely new skill set. And it's, uh, yeah, I know a lot of people that hit me pretty hard actually. Yeah. So, well, let's move on to the book itself. So what would the 32nd elevator pitch be for a Lake most deep and the, uh, the Edward series? So the mean streets of Akrita need a man who can slide through the shifting politics, the treachery, the uh, interwoven um, intricacies of a, of a land that uh, everybody has rivalries, and the rivalries shift depending upon the context. We need someone to come in and take care of those, and help solve mysteries and murders and mayhem. And that turns out to be Edward. It's not what he wanted, but that's what he's got. So what do you think it makes this series special? I think what makes it special is I combine the best of Tolkien, uh, Robert B. Parker's Spencer series, and I add a dash of other things to spice it up. Uh, the most fun part would be Randall Garrett's sort of magical CSI that he put into the Lord Darcy series. All right. And so what uh, tropes did you, you feel like fits best that you included in the Lake Most Deep? I think the biggest trope in that is is uh, the wanderer looking for a place, um, a home, um, and that's that's the biggest one for Edward. Okay, so obviously this is a fantasy novel because we we sort of stated that one pretty clearly in the beginning. So, um, what subgenres of fantasy does this fit into? Well, there's the mystery fantasy side of things. There's the swords and sorcery aspect of it. Uh, this one is definitely much more swords and sorcery than, for example, uh, I Am a Wondrous Thing in that trilogy is is, all, is designed to be more epic fantasy. So I would say uh, fantasy, mystery, 
and then Swords and Sorcery. Okay, um, now let's talk about the story itself. So what can you tell us about the main character? What makes him or her unique in the crowded field of uh, fantasy novels? I think what makes Edward unique uh, in so many ways uh, is where I started with him. He actually started from a character in Bede's Ecclesiastical History of England. This is a collection of stories that Bede gathered together to describe England's history. And this is, you know, 1,500 years old, 1,400 years, something like that at this point. And there's a story in there about a character who uh, was fighting next to his king. And he gets hit on the head. And he is unconscious. And his king dies. His All his thanes, his fellow thanes, they die. And, and this character, Emma is the character's name, survives. And he's put in this awful place where the oaths that he has sworn to his lord, the Germanic retainer lord oath, um, contrasted with his oath to Christian uh, religion, Christian God. And that if he fulfilled one, he broke the other and vice versa. And I love that trope, I guess. And so he is built upon. Um, I think that's what makes him special is that he's got this, this, this challenge of these O's that are tearing him apart throughout that are, he's just trying to live up to them, but he can't. Okay. Um, so were there any secondary characters that were memorable to you in this series? Uh, many actually, um, I write characters first, right? I don't necessarily worry about the plot as much. As a pantser, I worry about creating characters. And then I put characters into situations and let's and find out what they do. Oftentimes, I, ta- I say I play Dungeons & Dragons with myself as the DM, and then I get to role-play the characters. Uh, the character that is probably the most um, uh, interesting the one that has had the most impact on the books and, and frankly, the entire universe is her name is Katarina. And she was, she's a crime lord. She uh, runs uh, a goodly amount of the crime in Akrita. And she is a very interesting cookie who basically wants what she wants and she does it. That's it. She does what she wants. And sometimes uh, that means she helps people because, oh, I just decided I'm going to help you. And sometimes it means she kills them. And sometimes it's in between. And as I'm writing this character, this character is so chaotic. And I actually do kind of lean to using the D&D characters uh, or alignment stuff as sort of a, a basis for, some time, for characters sometimes. She's very chaotic evil. But chaotic evil does not necessarily mean she won't do quote-unquote good things. She just does what she wants, like I said. And so as I write this character, I find her doing things that change the story because I wouldn't do those things. But Katarina does these things, and suddenly I'm going, wait, 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 come back, come back. Oh, what the heck am I going to do now? And it's worse in some ways because whenever she does one of these things that makes me go, wait, 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 come back, I find myself going, wait, that's a better story than anything I had thought of previously. And in fact, the Lake Most Deep is a perfect example. Um, 
the main character, Edward, uh, has to talk to her. He talks to the other crime ward. He has to talk to the other to this crime ward, and he goes and 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 she talks to him. And and in the middle of this, the kidnapping that he's trying to solve, he says, "Wait, the girl wasn't kidnapped. You killed her. You took her place, and then just escaped in the confusion." And suddenly the story, which was a whodunit, becomes a why-dunit. And the why was always much more interesting than the who. And she never actually admits it you know, explicitly, but essentially does. And admits that she does it. But the why is the interesting part. And that made the story so much stronger. And she does that almost all the time. Um, Whenever I, I work with her, she, she leads me into stronger stories because she's just such a powerfully interesting character to me. In fact, the last short story I wrote um, in this setting, uh, which is in uh, uh, one of my anthologies, uh, Songs of Valor, she's the main character. and She's put into position of um, into positions that she doesn't want to be in. And I enjoyed putting her in those sorts of positions as well. She's a fun character. Fantastic character. Not someone I ever want to meet. Don't think it'll go well? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's, she's, she'll do whatever that she wants. And so what she might want on, on a random Tuesday might be something completely different on the following Thursday. And... Um, like I say, that could involve uh, something nice and positive. She might give me all this gold, or she might stick a, a knife in me. I'm just not quite sure. Gold, good. Knife, bad. Taking notes. Yeah. All right. Yes. <laughs> so if she's a secondary character, because she sounds almost like you're describing the bad guy, then who is the bad guy for this series? Could you tell she's us? She's one about of the bad guys. Uh, okay. There are a lot of bad guys. The universe, at least in this series, is filled with uh, competing uh, political uh, uh, challenges. The what I based it on was Byzantine politics, with all of that, uh, uh, with all the connotation of the interwoven uh, treachery. Um, he gets on the emperor's bad side in, in book two. This shapes the entire rest of his career, of course. But he's got allies with the local, um, some of the local leaders. And he's got sometimes Katarina and the other crime lord, Jabros, they sometimes have uh, reasons to use him. So while he, he, has, he has all these conflicts where he sometimes thwarts what they want to do, he still has to work with them. And he, he doesn't, you know, nothing is ever easy in a Krita. Because there's all these challenges and plots and underlying plots. And he is incredibly naive about all this sort of thing. Because he didn't grow up in this kind of environment. He grew up in a much more honor-bound... He, he grew up in sort of the Germanic warrior code ethos uh, environment. And so all the things that uh, he's used to doing of people keeping their word, generally speaking, even though that doesn't always happen, even in, in the most honor-bound societies, he's still sort of... People kind of admired that. Well, here, 
this is a society that admires the the trickiness and the uh, intricacies of plots and all of those sorts of things. And he's he's clueless. Sometimes that helps him because he gets to see things uh, through a different window, but sometimes it doesn't. So it's fun to to watch that character learn. So for those that aren't as aware, if you want to understand Byzantine politics, just watch Game of Thrones. I think uh, George R. R. Martin captures some of the, the brutality of that pretty well. There's certainly a good amount of that um, uh, in there. Uh, I actually think he's more direct than Byzantine politics because Byzantine politics has wheels within wheels within wheels within wheels of sly uh, undercutting of opponents that isn't always as as obvious as what happens in Game of Thrones. This the, is the true, history of, of Byzantine politics is fascinating. I was just trying to give a, a pop culture icon non-history nerds might understand. Yeah, but, sorry, uh, I'm a history nerd, so sometimes I'm like I get I get too much into that. All right, so you've done horrible things to your characters. You've created a brutal world for them to exist in. in. So if you met them in a back alley, how badly is that going to go for you? Honestly, with Edward, he's such an honorable dude. He probably wouldn't do much more than make me buy him the beer and expect me to, you know, try and be nice to him. Now, his friends, on the other hand, uh, Ragnar owns the bar, Parishka, the local uh, uh, warrior who uh, helps him, uh, and so on down the line. Those people, they're going to kick my butt. <laughs> Pretty much that's the way that's going to work. Okay. So, all right. So this is where you give us a uh, sneak peek of how the sausage was made. So were there any cool scenes that you had to cut when you were writing the first book that you ended up using later or just thought were kind of cool? Not, uh, not in any specific sense. Yeah, there are always scenes. From a general standpoint, every time I write a book, there are always chunks that I write and go, oh, this is good, but not good here, and maybe not even good for this story, and maybe it's, I, I even know a story every once in a while, I'll be like, I should have written this for this other story, and I'll copy and paste it over. That's the more general. Um, starting book three in this series, however, there is a, a particular uh, scene, or a particular thing that happened. Uh, book two, I'm not really giving a spoiler away to say that there's swordplay in uh, and and the mean streets of Akrita, sometimes, you know, uh, people get hurt. And in book two, uh, The Eyes of a Doll, he gets hurt. He's got several wounds that he has to deal with at the end of the uh, story. And while there are there is magical healing, it still takes some time, and he's not fully healthy the day after. And I really, for character reasons, needed to start book three the day after the events that ended The Eyes of a Doll. And I started book three, and I got 10,000, five to 10,000 words into it, and I realized none of it was going to work because it required Edward to be fully healthy at the start of that book. He had to have had some time to recuperate, which I didn't give him at the start of Where Now the Writer. So that chunk will be the start of book four. And I started a completely new story, completely new set of bad guys, completely new mystery for Where Now the Writer um, 
that in, allowed him to have some time to recuperate uh, before getting into more swordplay and, and maybe even getting stuck with a blade again. Poor guy. He just can't catch a break, can he? Nope. So uh, what can you tell us about the universe? So right now it is called the Shajuran universe, which is, like I think, one of the continents on your planet. Um, yeah. And then I know in many series, like the, the worlds where the story happens is as much a character as any of the protagonists or antagonists. So, so what can we expect? Well, um, you, you said it. Shajuran is a continent. And that becomes a little bit, uh, we'll talk about how important that is here in a moment. Um, it is uh, a fairly large continent. It has, you know, I, I love the world building aspect. As a historian, I love building these solid kingdoms with um, um, interesting political structures and um, a variety of, of uh, intrigue and the kind of things we see in the world because none of them are, you know, human politics isn't always smooth. Uh, let's just say that. And I like building non-smooth stuff to create challenges for all the characters. And so for me, building up uh, the various kingdoms using my historical background. So I have a kingdom with uh, Russian medieval flair that's Periaslavl, one of my things I, I studied in grad school was Russian medieval history. Um, I have clearly a bunch of interest in Anglo-Saxon and Norse cultures and other and, and Celtic cultures. So all of that stuff is in there. I clearly am interested in Byzantine cultures. That's in there. I have some interest in a lot of sub-Saharan cultures I find and, and, and Indian subcontinent stuff. Um, I even built up a country built on um, Basque culture and religion, and they've become a lot of fun from a, from a design standpoint, because I, I uh, have had a lot of, I decided to try something intriguing in their political system. So I have all sorts of things that I got to build in this. It's filled with uh, wars, and there's going to be a war on uh, cotton, actually. Cotton will provide us a war coming up soon, um, because cotton was a pretty uh, difficult commodity to get at many points in time uh, in, in the medieval period. And it's a very valuable commodity for uh, making clothes because um, cotton is much softer than linen, for example, or and lighter than wool. So um, all sorts of things going on in that world. Uh, does that answer what you're wanting or, or were you wanting something a little bit more... Um, I don't know. So no, you you answered it. So this is a good point to talk about. So you've uh, you're reorganizing. I, I saw this when I when I was prepping the show notes. That you're reorganizing what you called the the Shinjorin universe. It looks like you're reorganizing that into something more. So you want to talk about that real quick? Tell us about what's going on. Yeah, I, I'm uh, blessed to be able to turn Shinjorin into a shared world. Um. If you've read the Four Horsemen universe, you know how Shared World Universe goes. And it's, it's, it's got a lot of uh, things like that. Same you can get from um, Thieves' World and so many others. Um, basically what happened is that I had always built this world with a lot of empty spaces. And when you, you lay out a map, it's really hard to lay out a map, a world-sized map. 
many fantasies just don't. They, they lay out essentially a continent. That's what I did. And so I'm going to be joined by four great authors, um, Quincy Allen, Marie Whitaker, Mark Stallings, Todd Fonestock. Um, we're making the Eldros Legacy, eldroslegacy.com. You'll see it in the liner notes for the show. Uh, this is, they're each taking a continent of their own. And all the continents are different with uh, reflect their, author, their main author's personality, but also a number of historical things that we've built in so that when we get to writing the great Throw the Ring into Mount Doom story that will include all of us down the road, uh, it's going to be something pretty special. But part of the reason we're doing this is because there's so many great stories to tell in Chiguran that I couldn't do it all myself. We had to create this bigger world. And starting in December, and to be honest, starting in November, actually, with the second ta uh, Talents and Talismans anthology, that's going to have a bunch of uh, Eldritch Legacy stories in it. This world will basically will have a book coming out the first Tuesday of every month for as long as we can do it. And currently, we have the first twenty-four laid out, ready to go, and we are building up after that and that's going to include a number of other authors people like sam witt aaron rosenberg courtney farrell um, we've got some great jamie ibsen's going to be writing in it we've got some great authors to come along and, and you're, this is going to be something that we're going we love what we've done with this project we've been working on it already for eight months trying to make sure that we provide you guys something really cool and that we consistently give you great stuff that every month you can rely that there's going to be something new in this setting to add to it. Much like the Marvel Universe always gets you constant content, that's what we're doing. Okay. That sounds exciting. So we'll, we'll dive in a little more narrowly. So A Lake Most Deep is part of a series. Uh, it says on Amazon that it's currently a trilogy with three books. But So is the story of these specific characters done? Or is there no. the truth? No. Um, the, the Edward series, it's really not a trilogy. It's a series of uh, private eye novels. Each, each is a standalone mystery novel. Uh, following that are the other series I have in Shear and right now. That's, it's sort of going to be a prequel, and that's the I Am a Wondrous Thing uh, series. That's a prequel to what's going to happen to Eldros Legacy, and, and uh, we're going to see those characters. In fact... The Door into Winter, which will be my first quote-unquote Eldros legacy novel, which comes out in April. Uh, the Door into Winter will take up where uh, Nun Call Me Mother, the third book in the trilogy I did, started with I Am a Wonder's Thing. It will take up where that left off because there's still more to that story. And those characters that survived um, have lots of work yet to do. So we know that every inter uh, universe, at least, uh, that um, the good ones anyway, have their own internally consistent rules of science and magic. Obviously, this is fantasy, so it's going to be magic-based. But what sort of stuff can we expect from, from the magic system in this world? So the magic system is something I paid a great deal of attention to because you're absolutely right. If you have a fuzzy magic system that the writer can just change willy-nilly, then there's really no tension because if the readers know 
that the writers can just sort of come in, swoop in and say, oh, poof, we've solved the, the monster or the mystery or we've, we've defeated the monster and it's become this magic thing. And I know you didn't know about it beforehand, but here it is. Uh, that's boring. That takes away all the tension. So I built up a pretty stringent magic system that all of us are working with um, in this universe. And it, uh, it has five streams of magic. Um, one is uh, what I call love magic. And actually, it's the magic of emotions. Uh, basically, that particular spellcaster can manipulate emotions and do all sorts of things with them. Make people mad, happy, love, all those sorts of things. Uh, the second uh, would be what I call line magic, and that is the magic of symbols. So songs can create uh, magic, runes, uh, uh, glyphs, all sorts of things. In fact, line magic is the most versatile of the magic systems, uh, magic types there is in my world. Uh, each one, uh, it can do just about anything, but because of its versatile and because it's range limited, people have to see it or hear it, that sort of a thing. It's actually one of the least powerful, versatile, but not powerful. Uh, then there's what what I call land magic, which is sort of manipulating matter. It's uh, got a little bit of C equals mc squared in it. It's um, it's the elemental magic, manipulates light. You can manipulate sound, um, all sorts of earth type magics in there as well. Um, that's land magic. The next one is life magic, and that's sort of the inverse to land magic. Land magic can can deal obviously with inanimate objects. Uh, life magic can deal with um, objects that were alive, are alive, and were alive, like leather. Like they can uh, create leather magic items, that sort of a thing. So, uh, the fifth one is in many ways the fun one for me. The fifth one is what I call war magic, and it is this, it's basically built upon a couple of different concepts. First of all, Gandalf rarely does actual magic. Like, we don't see him cast spells sort of in the Vancean D&D style. About the only time we see that sort of a thing is when he's, uh, you know, uh, on the bridge in Moria and fighting the Balrog. But Gandalf is almost always at the right place, at the right time, doing the right thing. And the second thing I built into that is comes from Asimov, actually. It comes from Asimov's Foundation series. And the idea of the psychohistory that he built into that Foundation series, the idea that they could sort of predict masses of people, where they would be, and that sort of thing. And I combined that concept with the idea of butterfly effects. And so what lore magic does is it shifts probabilities. You shift a small probability shift it again, shift it again, and you increase the probabilities of the things that you want to have happen. This particular magic is by far the most powerful. It is also by far the slowest. It might literally take centuries or decades or even millennia at times to complete what it's trying to do, but it can topple empires. It can do all sorts of things if you have enough time to do all the butterfly effects and if you can predict them well. And other people who are seeing the same thing um, 
don't stop you. So it's a lot of fun to work with that. So those are the five types. And in the world, uh, most people, very few people can use magic at all. Uh, those who can fall into three different groups. Group number one, which is more than most who can use ma the, the largest group, they can do some small trick. Uh, think along the lines of D&D cantrips. They can do one small thing. You might also consider the, the Zamps kind of talents that, that they could do one small thing. Uh, a, a smaller group would be the ones who can do what we would call wizards. Uh, Curioi is the term I use in the world. Uh, they can, but they can only do one of those types of magic. They can do, they can manipulate emotions, but they can't do sign magic, or they can't do, and they can't do life magic, and they can't do um, uh, land, ma you know, any kind with objects, and they can't predict the future or, or change the future, and all the way down the line. So they, most wizards can only use one of those five things, which basically means I give them a hammer, and I give them tasks, and they have to find the way that the challenge, that their hammer works with that challenge. And then finally, there's an exceedingly small number of wizards who can do two of them, who can do two of the types of magic. And by exceedingly small, it's uh, one out of 100,000 people who can use magic or so, uh, maybe even less. We haven't really even listed the bottom line on that. Um, but it's... And that's just to the people who can use magic. So it's a really tiny amount who can do two. Uh, so that's the limitation. They get, they get to use one of those five types. And it's further limited because each wizard has personal ways of doing things. For example, if you are a druid type character, you're using life magic. And so you're building yourself the entire traditional druid idea of, of building around a grove, for example. Perfectly acceptable. But there are other things that they can't do as well. For example, they may not heal as well. There are people who use that style of magic who can't heal at all, but can harm people. Uh, there are people who might have a connection to one particular type of creature. Like, for example, I have one particular, particular wizard who really likes bees. And so she has this, you know, these hives of bees, and they do her bidding. So you, while you, you, know, you really don't want to mess with her, you've got a whole bunch of bees kind of grumpy at you. That's never fun. Uh, in, in line magic, for example, I have one who is, uh, specializes in using brooms, and I have some that specialize in using songs. So every one of these wizards has their own sort of personality and their own sort of limitations. Uh, things that they do well um, that further subdivides. There is a general rule that we have about all of our all of our magic in the world, and this is a writing rule. This is a the kind of thing that I hate to see as a reader, and that is if a character uses magic in such a way that the reader of the book goes, yeah, sure, that had happened. Then the author of that scene 
has failed. So now that you know the limitations, if you see us break it, you have to understand that we have a reason that you may not know, but we really don't ever break any of this stuff. There are, there are reasons for some things that we haven't told you, but we're really big about not breaking you out of that. We've made a promise. This is the limitation on the magic, and we're going to live up to it. Okay, so of all of the magic that you created in this world, which one would you want for daily use? Line magic, probably. I'm not a guy who really stresses about being big and powerful and all of those sorts of things. But man, if I could have runes that would let me eat and drink whatever I wanted and not get as fat as I already am, or you know, maybe have runes that every time I, I, I did something financially, it always worked out best possible so I was richer than I was, who wouldn't like to be able to drink all the beer they wanted and have money to pay for it? Um, so I guess that that would be me. There's a line magic, which can do all those sorts of things, uh, just not terribly powerfully. That sounds like Valhalla. Drink all the beer you want. Don't get fat and have a bunch of fun. Dude, yeah, there we go. There you got my there you go my heaven right there. All right. So now that we know what tech or what magic you'd want for daily use, how would you abuse it? How would I abuse it? Well, I think yeah. you got it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, I'm more eating another pizza, dang it. I'm having all the butter chicken in the world and or um, you know, give me every IPA in existence and and no hangovers. I'm I'm, you know, wouldn't that be nice to be able to drink all the booze you wanted uh and no hangovers? Ah. Yeah, but I mean, IPA, do you actually like those? I always thought they were I just drink- Wow. Okay. I, I don't. I don't particularly like an IPA. The India Pale Ale. Like I get why they were invented. The history of the IPA is fascinating. But I've I always pref- I preferred the light beer. And everyone's like, "Oh, you mean like Budweiser?" I'm like, "No, no, no. That's it is a light beer. But like the difference between a light beer and a dark beer is how they brew it, and the flavor is different." I um, will tell you that most beers that are not IPAs or porters, which actually have a lot of extra hops compared to many other beers, right. Um, they're all too sweet for me. Really? Okay. I, I can't drink Chappelle's. Like I can't drink Chappelle, uh, Chimay or any, or Dragon's Milk or anything like that. They're just too sweet. They're so sweet that it's sickly sweet. And I'm just like, okay, I've had my little bit, and you can have the rest of the bottle. I, I will say, everyone that thinks they don't like beer needs to take at least one trip to a, a reputable beer uh, beer howl. And, uh, and and have them where they actually make it on site, not where they just, you know, have whatever on tap, but where they actually make stuff on site. And just try a flight of, of whatever, you know, if you like dark beer, or you tell them the kind you like, and they'll give you all the samples that are close to it. And you'll start realizing they all have, like, different flavors. It's a lot of fun. Sam Adams had a really neat 12-pack um, four or five years ago, maybe longer. It was six different IPAs, but they were all brewed to the same recipe with the exception that five five of the six recipes were one particular hop. So they picked Cascade hops or, you know, whatever. And so each one of them had had a different hop. So it was the same recipe. So you could basically tell the difference between the various different hops. which there's a surprising difference between the varieties. And then the sixth one was all five of the hops together in one melt. And it was really a neat opportunity to sort of 
differentiates um, flavors. Nice, nice. All right, but well, we could have our own podcast just about beer. I don't know how many people that like sci-fi and fantasy would tune in. I would, though. So we, we might have to revisit uh, creating alcohol in fantasy worlds or something as a, as a fireside chat. And that's just an excuse for another drunken podcast. But um, so your, <laughs> your universe, we, we know you have fantas- fantastical creatures in it because you sort of hinted at that. So how did you go about creating them? Do you let nature inspire you? Do you steal from folklore? Do you, you know, you in- influenced by your nightmares? What's your strategy for creating these fantasy creatures? Yes to all of that. Um, I I mean, who doesn't want to have dragons in their fantasy setting? Even if I haven't necessarily put them into any of the, the, the stories yet, they're there. I mean, it's a fantasy setting. There's got to be dragons. Um, but on the other hand, I don't want every beast to be something that someone could open up their closest monster manual and go, do, 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 do. Oh, okay, so it's this beast right here. It's, uh, you know, whatever, you know, it's the Sphinx or it's the Ogre or it's whatever. I have some of those sorts of characters. But even when I'm dungeon mastering, just because I say something's an orc or say something is a dragon or, uh, you know, a particular form of undead, that doesn't mean that I haven't tweaked that beast some. I, I'm a big believer in taking things that we know and turning them a notch or two. So you get a lot of things you recognize, but then they do things that match what they are as opposed to what our expectations are. So I I just do, I try to do a little bit different so that it's not every time that the reader gets, you know, something that they're used to, something that they know everything about, that they can look for the stats and, and, and go from there. Got to liven it up. Got to switch things out. Okay, so I saw um, recently on your social media, and we'll link to all your social media in the in the show notes. But uh, I saw that you took over the fantasy imprint for Chris Kennedy Publishing. Um, so how's that going? And will you have time to write your own stories now that you're an international man of mystery? You know, smoking cigars in New York with all those other big publishers. Yeah, well, that's a good question. Hopefully, yes. Uh, in fact, I have, you know, I have things I have to do. In, in Eldritch Legacy, for example, I have two books I need to put out for 22 and two books in 23 and so on down the line um, of my own stuff. Uh, but the answer is it's going really well. I'm really excited about what we're doing with new mythology. It is a great honor that Chris Kennedy has given me the opportunity to try and, and build you know, more out of what he's been able to do. And he's done a lot of great things. But but I don't know how much you've paid attention to Chris Kennedy's publishing system, publishing process. Dude puts out a lot of stuff. He works his tail off. He's amazing. And in fact, he was getting so, he's doing so much. I, I went to him and asked him about this because I just couldn't believe anybody could keep going at the pace that he was going. And so I went and asked him about it um, in September of last year. And... Uh, I, like we said, he gave me the opportunity. And and what we have going on starting in October is going to be some pretty impressive stuff coming out consistently. I aim to put out two things a month for the fantasy and print alone going forward starting in October. Now, what is that going to start with? 
Well, first, it's going to start with the Talons and Talismans anthologies. I actually put out an open call for anthology submissions, and I got so many good ones, I actually ended up having to do two of them. Uh, the first one is going to be highlighted by Kevin J. Anderson, Rick Partlow, um, Dave Butler, Josh Hayes, a, a lot of great uh, writers, not necessarily in their normal genre, uh, which is part of the fun, Rick Partlow, for example. Uh, the next anthology is going to be heavily Eldros Legacy focused. In fact, all five of the main authors in the Eldros Legacy uh, have contributed an Eldros Legacy story to that. All five of the second wave of authors, because there's a there are second there are five more novels coming out after the first five that that we've done uh, for the, that the founders did. Uh, all five of those authors have stories in this anthology, and several of those stories also are set in the Elder's Legacy. So it's got a pretty significant uh, bent there. Um, Dave Butler is actually writing another story for that because it's got a two-parter, one that starts in, in, in the first anthology and, and then in the second one. Uh, in between those, John Osborne has given me The House Between Worlds, which is the next uh, Malaysian Accord novel that starts with a Reluctant Druid. Um, that's I'm really enjoying it. I'm I'm over halfway edited my portion of it, the edits, and it's it's exciting. It's all up to John's stuff, and if you've read his stuff, it's fantastic. Um, after Talons and Talismans, looks like we're probably going to try and squeeze in a couple of Stephen G. Johnson novels. Um, Stephen wrote Keep of Glass, which is a really good sort of Arthurian story. Uh, and he finished the two other novels in the trilogy, he sort of did them all together. And we're actually going to put, put them out um, the end of, if things work out, we still got um, a lot of work to do. But if things work out, we'll do that at the end of, December, or end of November and then the end of December for those. But in between, starting December 7th, will be the first Eldros Legacy standalone novel. That's by um, Todd Fonestock. It's called Kyvan the Unkillable. That one is basically in the can. We've got cover art we'll be showing here in September. Uh, and then following that, it looks like we'll have Seeds of Dominion first Tuesday of January by Quincy Allen. Uh, following that will be first Tuesday of February will be Embers and Ash from Marie Whitaker. Following, and then in first of uh, March will be first Tuesday in March will be Mark Stallings Forgotten King. And then finally, uh, first Tuesday in April will be Adorned to Winter, which, as I said, will follow in the, the stories that I finished in None Call Me Mother. And then we'll get into a bunch more. We've got five more novels laid out that are in progress already from Aaron Rosenberg and Sam Witt and a number of other great writers. So we're, it's going to be uh, quite a neat thing. So first Tuesday of every month, you can expect an Elder's Legacy novel. Somewhere so, on top of that, we've got even more stuff planned for 22. I mean, it's going to be crazy to see if I can fit everything into it. So much going on. And it's good stuff. Stuff with heroes doing heroic things. I said that's what got me into fantasy all the way back, however long we started to go. 
it's what got me into fantasy and what keeps me going as an editor is to try and get heroes doing heroic things. And boy, have my writers delivered. Exciting times for me. So if anybody listening to this says, you know what, this writing thing sounds like it might be fun and I like fantasy. I want to write something for this cool cat, Rob Howell. How would they, how would they do that? What's your process? Well, a couple ways. Um, the way I, I think is, is probably most successful is we routinely have open calls for our anthologies. Uh, I try to have several anthologies a year or two or three anthologies a year and have um, in most of them, there will be open the section for four authors who aren't necessarily big names, who are, uh, who can submit, anybody can submit. Uh, the ones I chose, I chose eight for the, you know, four for each anthology for Talons and Talismans. And, and man, it's great stuff. In fact, my favorite story is not necessarily the ones from your big names like Dave Butler and, you know, Kevin G. Anderson and whatnot. But my favorite stories are, from some people you've never heard of because they're just that good a story. And um, so we got to pick out of, you know, all these different stories, the best of the crop. That's really fun. And, and we do that because we're not that far from being new authors ourselves. And in many ways, I still am a new author. I've still got so much to learn. It is important as an organizational philosophy from both Chris Kennedy publishing himself or Chris Kennedy himself and in New Mythology Press, that we provide opportunities for new writers. So we will almost always have open calls in our anthologies unless there's something very specific that an anthology needs to do. Uh, that being said, you can also email me at rob at chriskennedypublishing.com. If you've got a manuscript, please send it to me. I will get to it when I can. I'm kind of backlogged a couple of months to be able to read things these days. Um, but I am looking forward to finding new authors and giving them opportunities. I'm currently in the midst of working with an author right now that I really hope we can take care of, we can we can set this up because she's given us a tremendous young adult series that uh, I don't want to talk too much about, but boy, I'm excited because the first one I, I, I got it in my hands, I'd never read anything by this author, never heard of her. And I got to 3 a.m. and I was like, well, there's only 20% more to go in the story. And when you have one of those that makes you do that as a, as a reader, it's fantastic. And it's even better when you ha find someone to send you, send you something like that as a publisher because, you know, you, you might have something there. So I, lots of exciting times. If I, if I sound giddy, it's because, man, this is so, so much cool stuff that I'm getting to be a part of. Okay. All right. And, um, so I received a tip from my global network of spies because, you know, I've got I got people everywhere watching the interwebs and they said you're you've got a special project coming up aside from the work you're doing as the managing director of uh, New Mythology Press. The uh, so you want to talk about that? You've hinted well, at it a little bit earlier. Yeah, I've talked about it quite a bit. And that's the Elder's Legacy Project, which will be uh, again. We aim for this to be a multi-year project where you get something every month whether it's a novel or an anthology. And we've got the first two years mapped out with the anticipation that following that will be another sequence of stuff that hadn't even been, like, I'm not even sure who all is going to write in it because there's a bunch of authors talking to me. Hey, can I get in on this gig? Can I get in on this gig? The answer is yes. 
we'll talk about that. And I, I have Bibles that I'm sending out to some of these authors. Um, it's a shared world, just like the Four Horsemen. Four Horsemen is up to 70 novels or so, 70 novels and anthologies or so at this point in time. How did it get there? It got there because uh, Mark Wandering and Chris Kennedy had a great idea for a universe. And then they opened up the sandbox and let us play. And frankly, uh, that's exactly what we're trying to hope, trying to do with Elder's Legacy. We've created a, a really fun sandbox with a lot of different twists and uh, monsters and characters and, and intrigue and uh, underlying history that will shape the great Throat Ring and the Mount Doom stories that we've got planned for way down the road. But it's uh, so much fun. It's so exciting to be a part of the project. Like I said, the, the other four founders are fantastic to work with. We've got a great editor on board, Maya uh, Cleave, who's edited a lot of bunch of stuff for Chris Kennedy and for Wordfire and uh, a number of other places. She's a fantastic editor. She's our primary editor. Um, we've got... Uh, 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 a number of great artists lined up, including uh, Rashid Alakaka. I, I don't get his name well uh, near as well as his uh, art. You'll see his art on Kiving the Unkillable. Um, Jake Kayla, who's done a bunch of art for Christianity, he's going to be contributing. A bunch of other artists. Uh, and then down the road, we've got some other big plans that I don't really want to get into yet because we haven't come anywhere close to fruition. But man, this world is going to be something special, and um, I am so honored to be a part of it. All right, so obviously we're winding this down. As you can hear, Elvis is going nuts in the background. He says, "Take me for a walk already." The um, mosquitoes so, are done. The mosquitoes are done, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, was there anything about a lake most deep that we didn't ask uh, that you want to tell us before we wrap this up? Only that everybody who I who's ever read it who's a big mystery fan came up to me and said, I could have gotten the answer, but I didn't because it was so well hidden. It was all there, but I could have gotten the answer and I didn't because it was so good. So I will tell you that I've, I've been honored by all the people who've come up and said something along those lines. Like the answer was there in retrospect, but okay. not until I saw it. Is there anything else you want to let us know about New Mythology Press or the uh, Eldros universe? Um, or are we good to, to, to give everyone your contact information? I think you should get because it's not like I haven't been like talking about this for almost two hours now. Which uh, I guess what I really would like to add is thank you again, JR, for giving me the opportunity to pick your brain. And, and thanks, Elvis, for being patient. <laughs> so uh normally we would have i'm gonna remind the listeners the uh the guests uh our co-host would be here but uh all jokes aside uh everybody knows that nick garber is a um border patrol agent and things are a little bit um busy this time of year for him and uh and Seska's doing her whole dragon con thing uh you won't be hearing this the week of dragon con but it was recorded then so we appreciate your patience i know the shows are generally speaking a lot more fun when there's the banter between the hosts as well. Um, I, I can be a little boring sometimes because I get nerdy about history that no one else cares about. But uh, we I'm appreciate a complete and total nerd. I mean, if that hasn't become clear over this last hour and a half, let me just but, make it uh, 
explicitly queer. We are. We appreciate your sticking with us. Um, so, Rob, can you tell listeners how they can find you? And as usual, dear listener and viewer, the the links will be in the show notes. Uh, RobHowell.org. Um, easy peasy. My blog is robhowell.org slash blog. Um, I know, really had to work on that title. Uh, eldroslegacy.com, that's E-L-D-R-O-S legacy.com. Um, that's the site for all the, the new information. Uh, if you go to that site, there's a place you can sign up for the newsletter. But I one of the things we're going to include in here is a link to get uh, five free stories if you sign with up with the new newsletter. Um, so if you go to that link, you get a uh, free download and become part of our newsletter. So I suggest you do that. So simply signing up for the newsletter. Um, but you can of course do both. Um, let's see. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on Twitter, rotary 2112 on Twitter. I'm on MeWe. I think all these links are going to be put on to the podcast. Is that correct? Absolutely. And, and then there's my Amazon page. Um, I think that's it. Uh, uh, Rob at ChrisKennedyPublishing.com or Rob at RobHowell.com is my email, so feel free to email me. All right, and you can find us, dear listener, on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tacky and tack blades. Again, that's anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. We're on Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We have our Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen, which is facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again that's facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades uh, podcast all of that will be in the show notes as usual you can support the show uh at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley again that's buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley uh that can be for a one-time donation or you can set it up reoccurring as little as 99 cents or if you want to do it even more direct over at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades they have a support option that works sort of like um Patreon, where it lets you, it automatically does it as a reoccurring payment. So buymeacoffee.com is sort of set up for a one-time fee, and uh, Anchor FM is set up for a, a reoccurring thing. And for those that do support, we appreciate it. You've helped us pay off our editing software, which is good. And so maybe next year we can cover the overhead and keep the lights on. Um, and if you uh, put in the comments for the Buy Me a Coffee that it is for the podcast, I promise I will keep Doc Saska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. You know, now that you mention all of these things, which, first of all, you guys should pay attention to that. I really appreciate these guys for having me. I should also mention that myself, Kevin Steverson, and Ian J. Malone, we also have a podcast called Due to Hyperspace. I should probably have mentioned that earlier. All right, so we will link that in the show note. Um, we've actually had Ian on. He's a good dude. He always leaves me hungry. Like we talk, end up talking food, and then I'm like, crap, I picked a horrible day to be on a diet. But uh, well, we will link the dudes in hyperspace for you, dear listener. Uh, and thank you for spending some of your precious time for with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Saska, I am J.R. Handley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be here next week at the same time where we indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. And since Saska is not here to correct me, this is your friendly PSA. Pineapples do not belong on pizza. <laughs>